0: There are a number of uh, biblical movies I'm sure that you have seen that are coming or heard of that are coming out soon. Uh, There's Noah starring Russell Crowe. There's Exodus starring Christian Bale, keeping up the Hollywood tradition of having white dudes play people of ancient Near East descent, (laughs) Jews and Arabs and so forth. And this tradition, maybe not started, but was done most famously by Charlton Heston playing Ben-Hur. Playing John the Baptist in The Greatest Story Ever Told, and Moses in The Ten Commandments. And the thing that the new ones, I hope, will benefit from is better technology, because if you watch The Ten Commandments today and you see Moses parting the Red Sea, it looks very cartoonish. And the burning bush, when Moses encounters it, is sort of like a Hallmark card. It's got a flame in the middle and then kind of rays emanating from it. It's kind of funny. It's not what they intended, I'm sure. But Moses, Charlton Heston, comes to the burning bush, and God begins to speak with them. And God speaks, of course, in this very deep voice. And, of course, he uses King James language because that's what they spoke back in the ancient Near East. Charlton, though he is a white dude, has this amazing tan. And the more he's with God, it seems the deeper it goes throughout the movie. Now, I obviously haven't encountered God in this way. I could use a tan for meeting with God. But Charlton's face changes. He becomes more tan. And the Bible tells us that when Moses goes up onto the mountain and meets with God, he comes back down and his face is radiant. Something has actually changed in his appearance. We studied the book of Acts a number of months ago, and when Pentecost comes, when the Spirit comes upon the apostles, they have something that appears as tongues of fire above their head. There's something dramatic, visible, exciting when the Spirit comes. And if you're flipping channels late at night, you can find preachers that are claiming to be able to do those sorts of things and have these outlandish ideas about what happens when the Spirit comes that may not be in our everyday experience. But what happens when the Spirit fills people in our passage? It's pretty different. The things we read about, the Spirit changing people, they're pretty mundane. They're pretty everyday things. They're how we talk. They're how we use language. They're what we do with our money. It's how we think about how we use our time, how we use our bodies sexually It's that we become more thankful for what we have, that our hearts long to be able to worship God. Pretty mundane, everyday things. On one hand, what Paul is saying in this passage is that when you encounter the Holy Spirit, that your life is utterly reoriented, that you're changed drastically and redirected, and those who were around the apostles in those days could tell that something was different about the way that these people went about life. So different, in fact, that they accused them of being drunk. There was this visible, tangible way of life that changed radically. Jesus changed these people. And yet, on the other hand, in our passage, we see that this radical shift is expressed within the normal parameters of everyday life. But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality impurity, greed, because these are improper for God's people, nor obscenity or foolish talk or joking, but rather thanksgiving. Do you see what's going on here? It's everyday things, radical reorientation in the way that we go about everyday life, using speech, using our bodies. This is challenging stuff, no doubt, maybe even a bit threatening or intimidating, Because as I alluded to in my prayer, maybe your experience has been being shamed by some of these words. Maybe you've been a part of very strict, dogmatic Christian communities that always talk about behavior, that always talk about morality, and usually about those on the outside. Or maybe you're not yet a Christian, and this is one of the primary hurdles, is that your image of Christianity is that we're obsessed about behavior, and morality, and what people do with their lives. Well, don't tune out. Don't let this pass by, because certainly these are some pretty demanding verses. They're speaking about sexual immorality and impurity and shameful things done in the darkness. But we tend to individualize these things. But Paul is addressing a church. Paul is addressing a particular Christian community that existed in Ephesus, and is saying to them that this is how you, church, holy people, those who name the name of Jesus, this is how you are to live. So Christians who are really paying attention as we read this passage, we should be incredibly humbled. We should be very tender to those outside. And we should be very aware of the charge of hypocrisy of those looking in from the outside. This passage isn't, first of all, telling you how to shape up. It's not telling you to change your behavior or you'll never be one of my people. What's the basis of the commands? Before he gives us this list of to-dos and not to-dos, then why? Why is he telling us this? What's the foundation? Follow God's example, verse 1. Therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Spirit-filled people don't have a better tan or better special effects. The dramatic change happens in everyday categories, in everyday parts of our lives. A Spirit-filled church receives instruction from God as from a trusted parent who we know wants our best, wants us to flourish, wants us to be free of things that would destroy us. You see, a child, knowing that their parent loves them, a child doesn't exchange good behavior for love, but they put their parent's instruction into practice because they already are loved, because they know that their parent wants the best for them. And so when a parent says, look, don't run in the street, don't take things from other people, don't lie, the reason that you follow those things is because you know that your parent has your best interest at heart. And that's what's going on here. A Spirit-filled church knows from encountering the Spirit that they are dearly loved children, and therefore they live in a different way. A Spirit-filled church walks in the way of love out of gratitude, knowing that Jesus loved them so immensely that he gave up his life on behalf of them. The Spirit fills you more and more with a recognition, with a grasp of that sort of inhabiting love that then begins to colonize the way that you go about life. If Jesus gave himself up for me, If Jesus, the most powerful person with all the rights and privileges in the world and in the universe, that he could claim for himself instead gave up his rights so that I could be set free, so that he could have me, then maybe I can be generous with my money. My money no longer has to be a primary source of meaning. My money is not what I look to for security. But instead, in recognizing and grasping the work of christ on my behalf that becomes to fill me that becomes to be my source of meaning my source of security if jesus sacrificed himself for me then i can sacrifice my sexual demands they become my my body becomes a tool of love for other people particularly for my spouse rather than an arena for my own self gratification I don't think about sexuality as only for myself and for my own pleasure, but given as a gift for someone else. Becoming filled with the Spirit, however, isn't passive. It's not a magical act that happens because the command is be filled with the Spirit. It's a perpetual, ongoing command that in some way we have to participate with this work of the Spirit, with this outpouring of the Spirit. Be filled is a command by which we open ourselves up, by which we ask God to conform us to this list, to these behaviors, to this outline of life that He expects of us. Our responsibility isn't then to just go and transform and begin, begin behaving in different ways, so that then we can be filled. It's, no, God, fill me from the inside out. I'm opening myself up to you, to all areas of life. Would you change me from the inside out so that I begin to reflect that list? How does this take place? What does it look like? Well, Paul uses a comparison and a contrast. You remember from middle school grammar, you're given a paragraph comparing two things, what's different, and what's alike? Well, that's what Paul is doing here. He gives us a comparison and a contrast. How is it similar? How is it different? Do not be drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. There's some ways that being drunk is similar to being filled with the Spirit, and there's some ways that it's radically different. Now, Christianity, the Christian church has had... A sort of weird relationship with alcohol in the last few centuries. And the Christian church has generally taken a relatively negative view of alcohol. But if you go back into history, you hear these stories. Martin Luther, the great reformer in Germany, his wife Katie runs a brewery in their backyard to help pay for the needs of their family and their many kids. John Calvin's role as the preacher in Geneva, his Remuneration included seven barrels of wine a year. That was part of how they paid John Calvin to be the pastor in Geneva. But there's also a warning here about not drinking, not wine in and of itself, but about over drinking because it leads to what? It leads to debauchery. But we need to be careful because debauchery is not a direct synonym for sin. It's not saying don't over drink because that's wrong. It's saying don't overdrink because that leads to debauchery, which is spilling or wasting something. Now, spilling or wasting beer in Portland, that may be a sin, but that's not what God is talking about here, what Paul is talking about. Maybe when you were in high school or college, someone in your group had a fake ID, and so you decided that... Tonight was the night to really tie one on. We're going to go out and have a great time. We're going to let loose. We're going to go and get what? Wasted. Now, I didn't know what that term meant because I was busy praying in my dorm room. (laughs) But I was told that it meant to go and get drunk. To be wasted is to get drunk. Drunkenness leads to dissipation, to wasting, to spilling something. You see, Paul's not highlighting alcohol here because over drinking is any more sinful than overeating or overspending or over anything. But what it represents for Paul is the opposite to a careful life, to a wise life, to making the most of every opportunity. It, was, it represents folly and waste and spilling over the gifts that God has given you, making poor decisions. As Homer Simpson says, alcohol is both the cause and the solution to all of life's problems. In excess, alcohol takes us out of reality. It dulls us to real life, and it's easy to become dependent upon that as a false solution, as a form of escaping from life. The spirit, on the other hand, notice the similarities and the contrast. The spirit, on the the other hand, wakes us up to life. And this is why Paul quotes and says, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Wake up to life. Be wise to life. Understand life. The Spirit, as the Spirit begins to fill you, enables you to see, perceive what is real, to see the world as it really is, to face difficulties with courage, to understand that Jesus gave up power to have you so you don't have to use sex, money, words as power over other people. You begin to perceive life differently. Do not be drunk with wine. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. In the Asiatic world of of Ephesus, a popular form of worship was centered on the God of wine, Dionysius. And these worship services were very exuberant. There was music and singing and drunkenness. And it was all about the self. It was all about seeking individual pleasure for the self. And Paul points to these drunken orgies in contrast to what should be taking place as Christians come together in worship. You see, it's not primarily, although there is a warning implicit in this passage about the dangers of wine for the individual, it's more a contrasting image of what should be happening in public worship. It's similar because both drunkenness and being filled with the Spirit involve coming under control of an external power. You see, wine transforms a person from the inside out. Wine transforms our temperament, our orientation to other people. Alcohol is a depressant. And what happens when you drink alcohol? You become brave. You become courageous. Because you have a magnified sense of self and a depressed sense of danger. You hear the term liquid courage. When someone's in a bar and they want to get courage to go and talk to someone of the opposite sex, they have a few beers for liquid courage. See, it gets rid of our fears by depressing negative thoughts, by actually hiding reality. You're brave, you're courageous when you're drinking. A community filled with the Spirit comes under the power of a different external thing. They're transformed from the inside out, but it manifests itself in exactly the opposite way. As the Spirit comes into a community, discretion grows. Wisdom is sought after. Desires are not for self-indulgence, but become oriented towards each other, wanting to give up rights, give up power in order to serve someone else. If you get courage from drinking because you have a magnified sense of self, when you're filled with the, with the Spirit, you become courageous through a magnified sense of who God is. And it's not this frothy, quick joy that helps you forget your trouble, but it's a heightened sense of how God wants to meet you in those troubles. So it's not escapism. It's understanding reality and being present for reality knowing that even in the midst of troubles that we would normally want to isolate ourselves from and do away with and avoid we move into those troubles and even into other people's troubles knowing that that's where God wants to meet us so how do we know if we have this how do we know if this is taking root in our lives let me just finish with three quick three quick indications one and Paul just lays them out here in verse 19 One, that a person that's filled with the Spirit is one who is speaking to each other, speaking to one another. A community that's filled with the Spirit is a group of people that are speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. What does this mean? That if in-town is filled with the Spirit, then we will be a place that's quick to encourage one another, quick to share gospel-saturated words of grace for one another, that we'll be concerned with others' welfare and we'll sit in both their joy and their pain and help them put both in context with wisdom derived from Scripture. Speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Secondly, that you begin to personally, we begin to as a community, to sing and make music from our heart to the Lord. Excuse me. Spirit-filled people speak to each other about what God's doing in their lives. Spirit-filled people look to music to express what's going on in their hearts. So we have music each and every Sunday that tries to draw us out of ourselves and our escapism and draw us into reality. Spirit-filled people sing songs from the Spirit that speak of their need for God's grace. They see this list of commands that God has given us that isn't given to make us more dutiful, to make us busier. It's a list by which we offer worship to God. It's not earning favor from God, but it's expressing delight unto God. And if you find God, if you encounter the Spirit, if you sense that the Spirit is beginning to inhabit you from the inside out, if you reach Him or attain Him, it's, not, it's because the Spirit Himself unveils Himself to you. And who does He reveal Himself to? It's not to those who have the list down pat. It's not to those who know the song and dance and can sing it in any Christian community. It's not those who know how to wear the mask. It's not to those who, but it's instead to those who know that they're spiritually bankrupt. It's, the Spirit is revealed to. The Spirit fills those who know that God is a God of grace. That God is a God of grace that doesn't divide the world into good and bad people, but He divides the world into the proud or the helpless. And then finally, verse 20 those who are filled with the Spirit, churches that are filled with the Spirit are always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Often a popular conception of Christianity is stop doing evil so that you can make God happy and get Him off your back. Stop doing evil or God will cause calamity to come upon you. But instead, give thanks for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ on whom all calamity came, on whom all evil was laid. Don't do evil because Jesus absorbed evil on your behalf, that the calamity of this world was laid upon him, and he gladly absorbed it and took it into his own person on your behalf. So give thanks, knowing that evil is real, that calamity is real, we're not being told to just put a smile on our faces and pretend that evil doesn't bother us. It's very real. Christianity says to be wise to it. Don't downplay it, but have the courage to face it. And there's nothing that says evil is real. There's nothing that says that there's calamity in this world unlike like the reality of the cross. There's nothing that says, however, at the same time, that evil is doesn't have the last word like the cross and the resurrection. Jesus went and paid for your sins forever. Be filled with that. Be nurtured with that. Be filled with the good news. Open yourself up to be changed by the sensationally good news that Jesus loves you and gave himself up for you. Let that be squeezed into every part of who you are. And then walk then obey, then worship. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that we would be a changed people. And as changed people, we would be sensitive to the needs around us. As a changed church, that we would be sensitive and soft and tender for those outside of us, especially those who are hurting, those who are reeling from sin and addiction, from all of the things that we want to see eradicated, not because we are so wise, but because you are and you have engaged your church in the work of bringing justice where there is injustice, of bringing light where there is darkness. Father, let that start in our own hearts. Would you bring light to the dark places in our own hearts, in our own church? Would you expose them so that light can shine, so that we can better reflect you? Would you let us live as becomes followers of you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now as we come to the table, we're going to confess our faith. This is the Apostles' Creed. We reenact the death and resurrection of Jesus as we come to the table. And in preparation for that, we...